Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on the Box of Oddities, a guy with no racing experience cons his way to a starting position in the 1982 Winston Cup Series at Talladega and then disappears for 40 years. Also, worms with spikes in their throats. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. As they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I get up this morning a little bit late. I walk out to the kitchen to get some coffee. Kat is already up. She's sitting there scrolling through her phone. She she looks up and she said, oh, we need to clean out the fridge today. I was thinking I'd make us matching shirts. And then she went on to describe what, what the shirts would say. Everything with Kat is like a team event. I can't tell you how many times Kat has made us matching shirts for various household chores. I just feel like it makes it more of an adventure. Mm -hmm. You know, normally (laughs) cleaning out the fridge isn't, you know, the most exciting thing. But if we were like the cool operators, you know, maybe... The cool operators. I was just thinking that maybe... (laughs) Okay. I think it's a fun idea, but we have closets full of matching shirts from various other projects that we've done. And None of uh, them have a refrigerator pun. That is that is true. Uh. She made me a shirt when I had to go for my proctology exam, which was, I got all kinds of weird looks. It said, give me a big thumbs up. Made them all chuckle. Yeah, the, I thought they would appreciate The that. colonoscopy room. That reminds me of the thread I found not long ago of all of the people on various social media sites that talked about how much they love the smell of their boyfriend's colon. <laughs> yeah, learn how to spell. <laughs> Cologne, I think, is spelled a little differently. Anyway, um, I love the story of a good con man. Well, there are no good con men, I guess, but a good story about a con man. Something very strange happened at the prestigious NASCAR Winston 500 race at the Talladega Speedway back in 1982. For those of you who may not be uh, NASCAR fans, Talladega is an iconic NASCAR track. The best of the best in the world of NASCAR have competed there. Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby did. And uh, it's not as... 
an easy racing circuit to qualify for. Just to get there is a remarkable accomplishment, which made it all the stranger when a man named L.W. Wright seemingly came out of nowhere and quickly rose through the ranks to earn himself a spot in this prestigious race. A guy nobody had ever heard of before. Interesting. At first glance, it it kind of looked like a rags-to-riches story for this guy, but virtually nobody knew him. Even stranger is that after the race, he completely disappeared, taking cash and equipment with him. He allegedly owed sponsors approximately $37,000 and had written numerous bad checks, and he just disappeared. The mystery of who L.W. Wright was And the details of his story remained an enduring mystery for over 40 years. This guy was kind of like the D.B. Cooper of NASCAR. Okay. I don't understand why he would owe sponsors money, Uh, but I don't understand NASCAR. So should we just keep moving? Well, I'll I'll dig into it a little bit. Okay. After four decades, after four decades, the mystery has been solved. But first, here's the details on what happened. Okay, can I just say I love that you're on this weird mystery kick. Like, the last few stories you've done have been mysteries, and I love it. Who doesn't love a good mystery? It was the spring of 1982, and newspapers in Tennessee were contacted by a publicist that was pitching the story of L.W. Wright and his amazing tale. They portrayed him as a short track racer with 43 starts in what was NASCAR's Bush Grand National Series at the time. They said he was 33 years old and he was going to make his Cup Series debut in Talladega. The story said he had financial backing from several country music stars, including Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, and T.G. Shepard. So these newspaper articles are published and write takes them to a company based in Nashville called Space Age Marketing. And he's able to convince its owner, Bernie Terrell, to loan him $37,500 to purchase a car and to cover his expenses. Terrell also provided him with a trailer truck in order to haul the car and his gear to Talladega. So he took the money and with 20,700 of it, and again, this was back in 1982, he purchased a racing car from Cuckoo Marlin and his son Sterling, who would later himself become a two-time Daytona winner. About 17,000 of it was in cash. He wrote a check to cover the difference. He then wrote lots of other checks for parts and gear and tires and even even spent a couple hundred bucks to have racing jackets, matching jackets made for his crew. Nice. That's the spirit. (laughs) According to ESPN in a 2019 interview, Sterling Marlin said, quote, hell, I'd never heard of this guy. He claimed to have won a lot of short track races in Virginia, but didn't seem to know the names of any Virginia drivers, including living legend Tommy Houston. So I decided I'd go down there with him to be his crew chief and just kind of keep an eye on him, you know. As soon as he got there, it all got even fishier. He went on to say it was pretty clear that Wright had very little knowledge of racing. He asked Marlin questions that Marlin said, quote, any real racer would have already had the answer to. In addition, nobody in the garage had ever heard of this guy. And it was at this point that a statement was issued by T.G. Shepard saying they had never heard of this dude. They were not sponsoring him. and They'd never heard of L.W. Wright. 
Again, according to ESPN, Wright then made a public apology saying that he had prematurely announced that sponsorship. And then he went on to say that there was some confusion about the experience that he had, that he hadn't actually run 43 Bush Series races, but he had run lower division events that were on Bush Series racetracks. Aha. Uh-huh. So lots of weird, fishy stuff going on there. But still, for some reason, NASCAR allowed him to make the qualifying run at Talladega. In order to make this race, you have to run the qualifying round. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of took his word for everything. <laughs> there wasn't <laughs> apparently not much vetting. And that's a really interesting, very common way that people who lie a lot get away with lying a lot. They create stories that are somewhat aligned with what could be true. Mm-hmm. So that if they get caught in their story, they're like, oh, no, no, no. It's Jerry Callow, not Jerry Gallo. People who lie a lot know how to lie. Who's Jerry Gallo? It was the name that Vinny and my cousin Vinny gave to the judge saying that he used to. Utes. (laughs) (laughs) So NASCAR took his word for it. They said, you can proceed with the qualifying round. And somehow (laughs) this guy qualified. His average speed in the qualifying race was 187.37 miles per hour. This is a guy nobody knows. And then there was a practice right after the qualifying round and he crashed his car. But he was somehow able to make the repairs in time for the race. So when the flag dropped at the race at Talladega, he was in the number 36 starting position. Now, there's a rule that drivers at this level must maintain a minimum speed of 180 miles per hour. Just for like safety's sake? If you can't, they figure if you can't drive 180 miles per hour, then you don't belong on the Talladega track. Oh, I thought maybe it had something to do with like maintaining the average speed of the group. Like I'm on sure the interstate has all of those things tied into it. Okay. But L.W. Wright was unable to maintain that speed. So after only 13 laps, he was disqualified, told to pull his car off the track, and retired to the garage. He ended up finishing 39th out of 40 cars, and that earned him about 1,500 bucks. Who finished 40th? I don't know. (laughs) And it was at this point that the guy just disappeared. Marlon said, for one, he was not surprised. From the same ESPN article, Tennessee sports writer, Hall of Fame member Larry Woods said, quote, if he could have driven as fast as he talked, L.W. Wright would be a NASCAR champion today. (laughs) And nobody heard from this guy. He disappeared for over 40 years. But now we have the answer. I have questions. Yeah, go ahead. Did he make off with money or was it just that... He got to do the thing and didn't have to, like, qualify for it or pay for it or anything. Yeah, I think it was he ducked out with some of the gear and equipment. Okay. Um, He didn't take the car, which is interesting, but he left a lot of people holding the bag for bad checks that he had written. Sure, sure, sure. And he had this sponsorship deal with uh, Space Age Marketing for 37500 that he was on the hook for. At least that's what these people said. 
I'm just trying to figure out if it was like this was an opportunity to make off with money or if this was more one of those like I want to see Frank Abagnale if I can get away with, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, we do have an answer to that. A guy named Rick Houston is a well-known motorsport journalist and worked at the Grand National Scene, which was a legendary NASCAR publication. It said that anybody in NASCAR, um, if they didn't read it, they didn't know what was going on. He now hosts his own podcast, which is called Scene Vault. He goes back and he pulls out articles that uh, he has done in the past and then uh, turns them into a podcast. Houston spent a year searching for L.W. Wright and he found him. And then he persuaded Wright to come on his podcast and tell his story Wow! on May the 2nd of last year, 2022, which was the 40th anniversary. I was going to say. Of the infamous race and disappearance. The man's real name is Larry Wright. So, first of all, how difficult would it be to find this guy? You know, he used his real name. (laughs) Of course, Houston wanted to make sure that he had actually found L.W. Wright. So Wright provided him with the uniform that he wore that day, and Houston compared it to the pictures that were taken on race day in 1982, and he says it's a perfect match right down to the stitching. So in the interview, Wright denied any wrongdoing. He said he had seen these articles where there were claims being made that he ran off with $30,000 or so. But he says, quote, I want to see who they are and I want to know how it come about. If it makes them stutter, then you know what I'm talking about, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, he said he had a lot of friends in country music. Apparently, he worked on their buses, but he claims he did not persuade any of them to do anything they didn't want to do. And a publicist was hired to create those rags-to-riches stories in the press. Wright then bought a NASCAR license, which was $115, under the name of Music City Racing. He then parlayed that press into backing from Space Age Marketing. He bought the car from the Marlins and then had them repaint it black. He then loaded the car up on the truck, and he and his hired crew just drove off to Talladega. In the interview on Houston's podcast, he said, quote, I'd never seen the track. I remember pulling onto the infield that day and standing at the end of the track and looked over at my brother, who was a member of the crew, and said, Lord have mercy, there ain't no way. This is a big track. The straightaway is like a mile. Oh, and you still have to go around a bunch of times? Yep. That seems like a lot. He went on to say, when you think about holding that car, the pedal flat on the floor all the way around that track, I said, That straightaway is almost a mile long. How much can that car gain before you go into the turn? I said, Lord, I'm down here, but I'm going to need some help. And and I didn't tell nobody else that. So he was asking the Lord to help him con people. I guess that's not that unusual. Well, he doesn't seem to think that he did anything wrong. Right, that's true. Which is very common for that kind Mm -hmm. of personality type. Mm -hmm. He says during the uh, qualification period and the, and the practices that he got unsolicited advice from a couple of future NASCAR Hall of Famers. Bobby Allison said not to not to feel bad if he didn't make the field, but said, quote, you're sure cocky enough. I don't believe he said that. Right. Then said that Dale Earnhardt. Don't even believe he ever spoke to him. <laughs> came up to him after practice and said, quote, when you get out there, 
This is the advice he gave him. When you get out there, get on the back of someone who's been here before and just follow them, stay with them, and then make your move. Yep. Don't believe it. Somehow this guy with no racing experience manages to qualify. He starts 36th. He finishes 39th out of 40 and then disappears for four decades. In the ESPN article, Houston said, quote, my takeaway from this is that LW was seeking to finally get a burden off his off his shoulders to finally get his side of the story out there. In the grand scheme of things in the rearview mirror, what he did wasn't truly all that bad. And I will say the story we have all heard all of these years and the story that he tells now are not the same story. Is that closure? I don't know. But to sit there and listen to him finally talk about it to a lot of NASCAR fans, that's a day we thought would never come. Again, he claims he did nothing wrong, that he did not skip out on any financial obligations. Whether that's true, we don't know yet. But what we do know is that he's a con man and a bit of a trickster who had a dream of racing at NASCAR's highest level and pulled it off. Larry is now 74 years old. Following a two-and-a-half-week manhunt on February 13th of this year, 2023, just a month ago, he was arrested in Knox County, Tennessee, by the United States Marshals Fugitive Task Force. <laughs> he was charged with theft, yep. burglary, and evading arrest 41 years after the race. The exact charges were theft over $2,500, burglary, worthless checks, and evading arrest in Jefferson County. Then they found out he was also wanted in Davidson County for parole violations. What? And then they found several other warrants from Granger County, Tennessee, and then more from Alabama and Virginia. Seems like he was pretty busy over the past 40 years. My source information, ESPN, thescenevault.com, Scene Vault Podcast, Wikipedia, and Ranker. <laughs> yeah, I did not buy that. Oh, it was just all a misunderstanding. <laughs> this is kind of a trend with you, hmm, Lair Bear? I wish somebody would make that into a movie, though. The idea that this guy really had no racing experience to speak of, certainly mm. not at the level he was pretending to have experience at. Right. He, just the scene from the movie where, where he walks onto the track and sees how friggin' big it is in person and goes, uh-oh. Aaron, Gita. Yeah. Yeah? Uh? Yeah. Any interest? Our producer friends in Los Angeles. <laughs> it uh, reminded me of... My, and I know this is completely unrelated, but that's how sometimes things in here work. Mm -hmm. uh, it reminded me of my favorite sports headline of all time. Red Sox prospect gets arrested, acts like a monumental jack wagon. <laughs> yeah. It's just the best mm -hmm. headline I've ever heard. That needs to go down in the Red Sox uh, Journalism Hall of Fame. <laughs> I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing. If you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now... That thing in the middle. In 1915, an English barrister named Cecil Chubb went to an auction. He was looking for something special to buy for his wife. He ended up buying Stonehenge for 6,600 pounds. That's right, Stonehenge was sold at an auction. Cecil raced home and excitedly told his wife what he had bought for her. Her response? I would have preferred a nice set of kitchen chairs. So three years later, Cecil gave Stonehenge to the nation, saying, I became the owner of it with a deep sense of pleasure, but it's been pressed upon me that the nation would like to have it for its very own. Ducky writes, Dearest Podmother and Podfather, in the latest episode, Cat mentions ghost lights in the theater, and my heart skipped a beat. I hadn't heard that phrase in ages, and memories started flooding back. Like a lot of freaks, I was a drama kid. I was skinny, I was poor, and I was a nerd. Drama was perfect for me. <laughs> My first two years of high school had me loving the theater. Whether in a production of The Odd Couple or rigging lights from the rafters, this was my home away from home. My first high school theater was massive, a three-story building set apart from the rest of the high school. 
and it was haunted. So we always left a ghost light on, but we took it one step beyond. The first quarter of the school year ended with our class putting on a mime production. Calm down, ladies, he says. (laughs) (laughs) Each student had to come up with an original five-minute mime skit. At the end of the show, we had one last skit. We turned on the ghost light on an empty stage and let our resident ghost do his mime routine. Thank you, Kat, for bringing this memory back. I always wondered where I'd be if I'd stayed on stage for my life. I know one thing wouldn't change. I would still be a freak. No. Mad clown love from Ducky. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Ducky. Joe sent us a message. Tiny boo effect. Just started listening to Kat's story about Thailand ghosts. Just about a week ago, I read a short story about the floating lady with her entrails hanging out. Oh my God, that's crazy. I had never heard of her until then. Thanks so much, Joe. And we have a question that you have to answer in order to be allowed into the Freaks group on Facebook. Freaks, a box of oddities podcast group. Every once in a while, if I'm not the one who approves someone, one of the mods will send me screenshots of the particularly fun answers. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to thank everyone who leaves the fun answers because I love them. Uh, Jennifer wrote, I do solemnly swear with nothing but my freakishness and love in my heart, my pants, and my gratitude for there being a safe place to let my freak flag fly. And that's what it is. It's a safe place for you. I think as members of the freak family, we often are, maybe we feel we're on the outskirts or the peripheral of society in many cases (laughs) because our interests maybe don't line up with the norm. Here we celebrate them. Frankie wrote, I solemnly swear my pants are open and wide. (laughs) Oh, and my heart too. That, yeah, of course, (laughs) goes hand in hand with open pants. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And what you got? Well, I was reading about hallucigenia. Hallucigenia. Yeah. Hmm. And this is a sea creature that lived around 508 million years ago in the Cambrian period. 
He was discovered, but it wasn't until nearly four decades later that scientists figured out which end was the head. <laughs> really? <laughs> so um, this guy has a, or had, a long tubular body, and it could have been anywhere between one and five centimeters long. Then he had seven pairs of long spines stuck out in one direction. Meanwhile, seven pairs of tentacles stuck out in the other direction. And it looked like he had like little mouths on the ends of his tentacles. Okay. Now, when you're talking about a, uh, a small creature with mouths on the end of their tentacles, mm -hmm. I can deal with that. But if you scale that bitch up... <laughs> Well, it turns out that's not what was actually going on anyway. Hallucigenia got his name because the people who are discovering and researching him thought that he looked so out of this world. It looked dreamy. Psychedelic? Uh, kind of psychedelic. Then at one end, he had a weird blob. And a lot of people assumed that blob's got to be his head, right? Mm hmm so after this deep dive into the where's the head conversation, they found that the blob end was not the head end as they had assumed. But at the other end, uh, there had probably been simple eyes and there was a hole with a ring of spines around it and a little further back in that hole, a set of needle-like teeth. Oof. So they confused the creature's head for his ass. Or his ass for his head. Yes. Sounds like members of Congress. And I think we can all agree upon that statement, uh, regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on. I would agree. So where was I? Oh, yes. Needle teeth in the throat. Mm -hmm. So this helped researchers confirmed that this guy was part of a group of animals called ectozoans. That includes insects, spiders, scorpions, crustaceans, centipedes and millipedes, water bears, and several types of worms. Now, water bears, those are the cute little ones, right? Yeah, the tardigrades. Yeah, they don't yeah. have like spiny things in their throat. <laughs> you don't know. I hope not. <laughs> One of the worms that they would be related to are velvet worms. And this is where sometimes I am researching one thing and then I end up moving into another thing because velvet worms are so cool. <laughs> so, so both of them share this similar growth pattern of claws. Um, and they believe that he's the extant creature most related to the hallucigenia. Velvet worms have hydrostatic skeletons, so they don't have hard exoskeletons. Instead, they have like soft, sacky type bodies that are filled with fluid and they are kept rigid by pressurized internal liquids. They move by the alteration of fluid pressure in their limbs as they extend and contract along their body. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it's kind of like the way a starfish functions. Gotcha. Uh, now, fossilized marine versions of velvet worms exist from the Cambrian period, and they've been found in the Burgess Shale in Canada, near to where the hallucigenia was first found. The velvet worms have very simple mouth holes with unarmed throat holes. <laughs> but another relative, the penis worm, 
also in the ectoderms. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Penis worms? Yeah. They have mouths that are surrounded by spines and throats covered in teeth, just like you know who. This suggests that the ancestor of the ectozoans also had similarly complex mouth parts. Oh, I want to go back to the penis worm for just a moment. Oh, um, yeah. How, how do you think the uh, idea was reached that penis worm would be the best name for this creature once it was discovered? Um, here's right. a picture. Yeah, okay. Now I get it. That, yeah, penis yeah. worm. That's Good call. <laughs> So yeah, basically at some point the velvet worm lost that in its lineage, which I think is nice that it doesn't have throat teeth. Approximately 200 species of velvet worms have been described, and they're all tropical, some living in South America, some living in New Zealand and Australia, and they have a huge range of potential sizes in between their 200 species, growing between 0.5 and 20 centimeters. So that's anywhere from 0.2 to 8 inches. Okay. The number of leg pairs that they can have range from as few as 13 to as many as 43. Wow. Now, they, keep in mind, they've got these stubby little feet. Like, can you picture a tardigrade right now? I and can. have they mm-hmm. got those little stubby sack feet? Mm-hmm. So they've got those stubby little sack feet, um, <laughs> um, which internally, as I mentioned, are hollow. And on the bottoms, they've got these little claws that they can retract. And that helps them keep tread, like if they're walking on something unstable. um, And then if they're walking on a smooth surface, they suck in those claws and they just use their stumpy little sack feet. Is how I imagine it would sound. Nature finds a way. In fact, the group that they belong to is called Onihophoria, meaning bearing claws. And their closest relatives are water bears. There is a whole other world. There's a whole other world. At a different level. Yeah. That we are not even remotely aware of. No, no. And there are 200 recorded species, but it's assumed that there are many, many more. Mm. Because when we're talking about animals at this level, there are so many that are undocumented, that have never been seen, that are unlike, you know, it's just, it's wild. I don't know how to express to you properly how cute these little bastards can be. Like, I know they're called velvet worms, and so that might kind of give you, like, a contradictory idea about them. I picture I picture a worm sitting in a chair wearing a smoking jacket, drinking, like, brandy. I mean, essentially, yes. Mm-hmm. He's so cute. And, of course, they look different species to species, but most of them are just... It, if you could build a bear that looked like what they're so cuddly mm-hmm. and they've got all the little arms to hug you with they're so cute would they hug you with them though unclear if they were big enough to hug you with them they, they would probably eat you with their spiny throats they don't have spiny throats we've discussed this oh they, they they're the ones without the spiny throats. yes okay though it should be noted that velvet worms are ambush predators Yeah, don't scale that up either. On the third head segment, to the left and right of the mouth, are two openings. And within these are a pair of large slime glands, from which they squirt a sticky, quick-hardening slime. That's how they capture their prey. They spot a prey, they sneak up, they squirt this like glue on them, Mm -hmm. and then they wait until it hardens, and then they go over, they... (laughs) inject digestive saliva into them to help liquefy their insides, kind of like a spidey mite. Mm -hmm. And then 
they start to consume it. Their jaws are divided into internal and external mandibles. So they move backward and forward, tearing apart the prey. Mm -hmm. But what's neat is the forward movement of their mandible is controlled or powered by musculature. But the other direction of the mandible is powered by hydrostatic pressure, which is so cool. Again, that's fine at a microscopic level, maybe even slightly larger than microscopic. But if you scaled that up to the size of a bulldozer, that would be terrifying. (laughs) The velvet worms also eat the dried slime as well as their prey because they have to make new slime in order to catch more prey. And new slime takes a long time to produce. And it can account for up to 11% of their body weight. Holy crap. Yeah. Also, which does not make this more comforting, is many types of velvet worms are pack animals. (laughs) And they hunt together, (laughs) trapping larger prey with their slime jets. When the prey is caught, the head of the pack, a female, will eat first, followed by the other females, and then males, and then the young. So who do they determine is like the head of the pack, right? Well, it's the um, female that got to the, the top of the pack. It's the, that's actually what they do. They form a clump mm-hmm. and the, the largest female will make her way to the top, like pushing everyone else out of the way and biting them. So it's like a greased pole competition. <laughs> it's kind of like that. They, that's how they figure out who's boss. Interesting. Now one type, sorry, got so excited talking about work. Now, one type of velvet worm is really interesting in that no males have ever been observed. Huh. I'm guessing that's not the penis worm. No, it's a velvet worm. Stop just saying penis worm. And what I'm saying is I imagine there are male penis worms. There are, yes. There are male penis worms. (laughs) It said penis. These reproduce by way of parthenogenesis, which is a natural form of asexual reproduction. Growth and development of embryos occur in a gamete without combining with another gamete. And this is not crazy unusual in nature. Other velvet worm species um, have evolved several creative ways to deliver the sperm to the female's egg. Now, some go the, a very traditional way. Uh, you can imagine mm-hmm. what that might... Worm uh, in, <laughs> Yep. Um, in some species, males have a special structure on their head or like a spike or a spine on which they put the sperm and then they kind of transfer it to her in that way, huh. which I picture kind of like a butler, you know, holding out something <laughs> and being like, would you like some of this, ma'am? Mm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Again, with the velvet smoking jacket. Right, of course. But most interestingly, I think, is males in the genus Peripatopsis just deposit their sperm wherever. It does seem completely random on the female's body. They just kind of like... There it is. Yep. And the female will stimulate a localized breakdown of her flesh in that spot so that she just absorbs it through right there. Worms are weird. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like them. What? No. These guys, I can't even express to you how cute they are. So females are usually larger than males, and typically they only produce once in their lives. And interestingly, females can 
store their sperm for many months before using it to fertilize their eggs so they can kind of assess the situation and go like, oh, now's a good time. I see. I sense rain, you know, or whatever. Their gestation period can last up to 15 months in some species, which for like a little creature like that is wild. I didn't even realize they lived that long. And get this, most give birth to live young, but a few of them lay eggs. Like, just... (laughs) Whatever they're feeling like. Whatever. Mm, Like, what kind... Anyway, young velvet worms are born fully developed. They just look like tiny, little, adorable versions of the adults. And that's just where they start. Okay. You seem completely not impressed with these worms. I don't... I don't like worms. I don't... Hold on a second. Okay. Well, now that I look at it... (laughs) It's horrifying. No! He's so cute. You don't actually think he's horrifying, do you? Again, if he was scaled up, yes. But he's not scaled up. He's a tiny little guy with these cute little fuzzy antenna and a soft, velvety skin <laughs> and his cute little... <laughs> Sweetie, it's not the velveteen rabbit. Look at him! It's, it's a worm. Just popping in to say hello. I'm not a worm aficionado, thank you. Still not. No, you can keep showing me pictures. It's okay, not I don't understand me. what's happening right now. He is obviously adorable. So anyway, I'm going to wrap this up because you are being a real bummer about these worms. Anyway, I got my information from BBC, Earth Archives, Wired, Wikipedia, and National Geographic. Guy's cat thinks worms are cute. Well, that looks like a snail. Yeah, they've got that snail vibe mm. where they're they're... They've got a neck head. But it's because they've got those big fat glands for their murder juice. <laughs> well, I enjoy how much you enjoy them. Oh, okay. Did you want to talk about something else? <laughs> we would like to welcome the latest members to the Order of Freaks, supporting the Box of Oddities on Patreon. Summer, SC and JT, Casey, SF, and Dana. Welcome, freaks. Thank you so much for supporting the Box of Oddities. We cannot tell you what it means to us. And as always, if you would like to join the Order of Freaks and support the Box of Oddities, go to theboxofoddities.com. Click on the Support This Podcast link, or whatever it says. It'll be pretty obvious. Your support helps fund the new terrarium for our new velvet worm. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories... Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. 
Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.